0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Talking Terror, brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre here at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. Today's episode was recorded on May 10th at approximately 4pm. As always, if you want to find out more about what we do here at Turk, be sure to check out our website, uel.ac.uk slash terc, and follow us on Twitter at tercuel, and tweet at us with the hashtag TalkingTerror. It's my great pleasure to welcome on to today's pod, Peter Neumann. Peter is a professor of security studies at War Studies Department in Kings College London. He was the founding director of the International Centre for the Study of Radicalisation, which he founded in 2008. Peter has authored and or co-authored a variety of books including Old and New Terrorism published by Polity Press in 2009 and The Strategy of Terrorism with M. L. R. Smith published by Routledge in 2010 as well as Radicalize, New Jihadists and the Threat to the West published by I.B. Taurus in 2016. We'll be discussing more about that book later on. He publishes on different aspects of terrorism and radicalization, especially homegrown radicalization in Western countries. Shorter articles and opinion pieces have appeared in, among others, the New York Times, Der Spiegel and the International Herald Tribune. He has taught courses on terrorism, counterterrorism, intelligence, radicalization and counter-radicalization at King's College London and the School of Foreign Services at Georgetown University, where he continues to serve as an adjunct professor. He holds an MA in political science from the Free University of Berlin and a PhD in war studies from King's College London. And before becoming an academic, he worked as a radio journalist in Germany. So, Peter, thank you for being on today's episode. Thank and, uh, you. As you know, first of all, I, I start off by these issues by asking people how they got involved in this area of research. And as I said, you started off as a radio journalist mm. yourself. So how did you transition
1: between those two careers? So I was a student in Berlin in the 1990s and I uh, became or I went away as an Erasmus student. Mm and ended up in Belfast in Northern Ireland, and where I spent one year between 1997 and 1998, which was an exciting time in Northern Ireland, because it was the last year of the conflict, but of course also the year leading up to the Good Friday Agreement. And especially as a foreigner in Belfast at that time, you were a bit of a Curiosity. People were interested in uh, speaking to you. Un- there weren't weren't too many foreigners in Belfast at the time, and especially if you were neither Irish nor English, mm-hmm. uh, you could basically go anywhere. And so I started getting interested in that particular conflict. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, in paramilitary factions that were active at the time, and when I got back in uh, back to Germany in 1998, I, I thought I'd, uh, I'll finish up my MA here, and then I'll go to to London to Kings to do to do a PhD about Northern Ireland, which I did. And of course, whilst I was doing that, 9/11 happened, and the whole conversation about terrorism shifted in into a different direction. But that's how I initially got involved, was the conflict in Northern
0: Ireland. And what was your PhD about? What specifically about the Northern Irish conflict did So you
1: I, my PhD thesis was about the evolution of British government strategy in Northern Ireland. Mm. So here at the War Studies Department, the sort of principle, if you want, theoretical paradigm is strategic studies or strategic theory. And whilst there are a lot of, sort of policy analyses uh, of... Of the of British government policy in Northern Ireland, what I was basically doing was to apply principles of strategic theory um, to to the actions of the British government. So that was uh, a different theoretical framework. And then I was also lucky enough to 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 do well over well nearly fifty interviews with ministers with. Principal private secretaries going back to the early 1970s, basically telling their story of what they did uh, in Northern Ireland.
0: So you transitioned uh, post 9/11 to a more a focus on on jihadism, and mm-hmm. that's what you're known for now today. Your your sure. research has been has been known for that a lot, and you. Obviously, the the readings in relation to Northern Ireland and this is is very different. And one of the pieces that you have uh, stated to me has been influential for you was Mark Sargent's book, Understanding Terror Networks. So, mm. what was it about this piece that that really
1: uh, that really influenced you? So, in two thousand, when was it two thousand four that the book came out? Mm. Um, I had finished my PhD, and I was starting uh, to become interested in issues led to radicalization, counter-radicalization, especially regarding uh, Muslim communities in Western Europe. Mm-hmm. That, that's always been my principal focus. I'm not a Middle East expert or something like that. I focus on Muslim communities in Western Europe. And what, uh, what Mark's uh, book was so influential at uh, was two things. First of all, he brought some real rigor to the study of terrorism and of radicalization, mm-hmm. uh, which until that point, uh, you know, there were parts of it that were really good—Martha Crenshaw, Bruce Hoffman, his historical treatments—but there were also there was also a lot of literature there that was really not very rigorous and which was effectively echo chamberish in the okay. sense that experts were citing each other. Yeah and mark in his uh, typical way was very much and very straightforward in insisting on rigorous standards of scholarship in studying these phenomena and the second point was of course that he brought the whole um school of um, uh, of 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 of, uh, network studies and of of social relationships social movement studies broadly understood to the study of terrorism, which until that point hadn't really been part um, of 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 the main publications uh, in the field. And so understanding social networks was something that uh, was really new and that was really compelling to me at the time. And I thought it really makes sense. And though, of course, you can also criticize uh, Sageman and, mm. and, and he certainly has been criticized. And I think his subsequent publications uh, were not necessarily as novel um, as the first one. But that that book really profoundly changed terrorism studies as we understand it.
0: And where do we see the influence of that piece in your future, uh, future research? Are there any particular piece of research that you can point to and say, yeah, understanding terrorist networks, terror networks really influence that piece of research?
1: Well, I think in relation to sort of everything that I've published, so one uh, study or one piece that we will talk about later mm-hmm. on was, for example, um, this idea of um, this idea of looking at um, uh, radicals or extremists or people who have travelled to Syria who have criminal pasts. Yeah. And if you look at, for example, w- we looked at the networks in the networks in Belgium, for example. Belgium was the country that in Western Europe that per capita was the most severely affected, most disproportionately affected in terms of travelers going to Syria. And if you look at the 450 people or so who've gone from Belgium, people always ask, why Belgium? Why is Belgium uh, so strongly affected? If you actually map the networks, you can clearly see that it was the influence of two individual recruiters uh, that really explain um, why so many people have gone from Belgium, um, or more than half of the Syrian travelers from Belgium are basically very close, closely related to those two individuals. So it's a powerful explanation mm-hmm. for some of the phenomena um, that, that we have looked at with ICSR over the past four or five years. And you see that reflected in all of our, all of our studies. To give you one more example, um, what we looked at when we started looking at foreign fighters um, going from Western countries... Um, what we looked at, uh, in terms of the data that we had collected uh, based on social media, was uh, the first thing that we did was to map out uh, their social networks and try to understand sources of influence. We wanted to understand the foreign fighters themselves, the people who had gone to Syria, uh, who were the people actually influencing them? Who were, li- who were the people listening to them? Mm. Um, And that led then to a study that was called Greenbirds, uh, Syrian foreign fighter fighter networks. Uh, And it basically, uh, through social network analysis, established that there were two radical preachers, which had been known but were not considered to be particularly important, that was super important amongst all the foreign fighters. Uh, There was uh, one guy that we inadvertently kind of almost made uh, quite famous, Musa Serantonio, who is based in Australia, that... Over sixty percent of the foreign fighters in our database, um, um, could be liked and were fans of, and listened to and debated in their conversations amongst each other. And uh, he, uh, after our study, he was actually arrested by the Australian authorities, and uh, he was then released on bail. He gave an interview to the Sydney Morning Herald, and uh, he said in that interview, "My trouble started when three guys in the basement." Uh, put me in a report and that was of course referring to us Uh and so, so social network analysis basically uh, allowed us to understand who he was, how influential he was, and also allowed Australian authorities, which of course knew him, but they didn't understand at that point how influential he was in uh, in influencing people who ended up going to Syria. So what
0: kind of data were you using for this uh, for this Green Greenbirds piece? And I know it's not mm. one of the ones that you were yeah. toying with whether to pick yeah. this as yeah. one of your, your ones to talk about, but I think it's important with this discussion mm-hmm. to... To really uh, find out what was the, what were the data that you were using in this that that brought this yes
1: findings. So what we had at that point um, was effectively a database containing uh, the social media profiles, uh, the online social media profiles of I think nearly two hundred fifty Western foreign fighters, mm. and you know, we collected a lot of their data, some of which wasn't easily quantifiable, Mm. pictures and comments on pictures and stuff like that. But one thing that one of our research assistants, uh, Joseph Carter, actually came up with as an idea was to say, let's look at the expressions of interest and approval. Mm -hmm. And those were, for example, likes on Facebook, and those were mentions and retweets um, on uh, and likes on on Twitter, okay, and yeah. we collected from those two hundred fifty all the expressions of interest and approval. Ending up with literally tens of thousands of these expressions of interest and approval, and basically um, that was the basis for our report.
0: Yeah, mm. no, no, it's 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 fascinating. I remember following it and and, and seeing that that statement from about the, the guys in the basement. Alright, I was wondering. Yeah, and in
1: fact, it's 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 now a methodology that has been used by a number of yeah. researchers across the world. And, yeah. I mean, I I don't want to claim we were the first one because often with these things, it turns out you weren't the first ones. But at least at that point, we weren't aware of anyone else having used that method. Yeah,
0: it's similar to we had a previous interview with Maura Conway in DCU, Dublin City University. And she said she started off her research on uh, terrorist use of the Internet and thought she was the only one that found there was someone else doing very similar uh, to the same research. The next piece that you said was influence Influential for you was um, Viktorov's uh, "Radical Islam Rising." It's quite—it's a different piece to to Marx's piece, but mm-hmm. it's they're quite
1: complementary as well. So, what was it about about this that that that, uh, that influenced you? So, Quentin Viktorovic, uh was uh, very important in the field, I believe, because uh, he uh, really brought the idea of applying social movement theory. Mm-hmm. Um, as as a body of assumptions and principles to the study of terrorism. And he basically said, um, and this is the important thing, these are social movements, and there's nothing... Yes, we are exceptionalizing them because they are terrorists, they are bad guys, they're using violence, um, but they are also social movements. And uh, the way they mobilize, the way they activate their support, the way they recruit, as people in terrorism studies would say, is not fundamentally different from the way in which other radical movements recruit their followers, yeah. including the ones who do not become violent. <laughs> and so he basically spelled out, he used these assumptions that had been used by, um, by, by very established sociologists, um, um, uh, uh, Tarot and, uh, and others, Uh, to analyze protest movements in the 1970s. And he applied these methods and principles and theories, uh, resource mobilization theory, for example, to the case of what was then known as Mm -hmm. al-Muhajirun in London. And uh, he interviewed a lot of their members, and he was very rigorous in establishing a lot of the insights that are still being used and are still valid for understanding uh, you know, the rise of of jihadi Salafist groups. Mm. Not least, of course, because Al-Muhajirun was uh, the group that produced Anjim Chowdhury. Yeah. And uh, Anjim Chowdhury, in turn, has been very influential in inspiring similar groups across Western Europe. So this book is not only important in relation to the theoretical approach uh, that it pioneered (laughs) but it's also important in relation to the actual substantive insights about the early days of that group um, that recruited so many people including a lot of people who ended up with ISIS because we had uh, also we were lucky enough to get a lot of these ISIS registration forms uh, that were found in um, uh, last year (laughs) Um, and in fact looking through them and we're currently working on on a project related to them, uh, people had to, uh, people always had to give uh, a name uh, as a reference, mm-hmm. someone who could vouch for them. In 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 Arabic, it's called tasqia, And uh, in fact, a lot of the uh, recruits from England, for example, mentioned Umar Bakri okay. as the person who was able to vouch for them, Umar Bakri, of course, being the mentor of Anjum Chowdhury. Mm-hmm. So even though that book is by now probably 20 years old or mm-hmm. something like that, it still has contemporary relevance it tells you a lot about the early history of that
0: game. yeah and with, with these connections with having someone to vouch for it's like what thomas heggammer would say called there's the they're playing the trust game as Absolutely. well like with, within the recruitment it's not just will you can you join us can we trust you and and
1: like and, and this is something that um uh, we experienced firsthand so we were doing field work in uh co- complementing some of the social media based research we had done on foreign fighters mm. we actually went down to the to the Turkish border towns from where a lot of people entered into Syria, Shiraz Meir, myself, and Joseph Carter at that point. And we interviewed a lot of people, um, including foreign fighters, but also people who were known as so-called transporters, who were bringing smuggling them effectively into Syria, many of mm. them professional smugglers, not, not necessarily ideological people, but yeah. people who were being told to bring people into ISIS territory. <laughs> And we asked them, uh, sitting in, where was it, in Rehanli, one of the border towns, we asked them, so if someone just turned up and said, you know, like, I looked at stuff on the internet and, uh, you know, I like the idea of ISIS, so I bought myself a ticket and here I am. um, All the people that we asked about that told us that person would very likely be rejected Mm -hmm. because the groups themselves... Uh, would not trust that person. They would assume perhaps that person has been uh, inspired or has been paid and uh, mm. has been paid to infiltrate us, mm. or, uh, generally speaking, that person is not trustworthy. Mm. So the idea of pure self-radicalization. I look at stuff on the internet. I turn up on the border mm. with ISIS and then I become a member of ISIS, is not only um, probably not very realistic. From the from the western end, it's also not very viable and feasible from 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 the perspective of ISIS, who would generally distrust these people. And um,
0: did were they saying if there were many
1: people turning up like that, or no, isn't? very few, very very few, and this is also absolutely something that we've seen um, in our studies. Not only that, um, that the vast majority of people. Uh, turned up in groups, very few people traveled by themselves, Mm -hmm. but uh, of course that, um, I cannot uh, give you an exact percentage, but the vast majority of people were basically uh, coming out of networks, out of uh, networks that existed Mm face-to-face, so they, they actually knew the person that had recruited them. And the most significant predictor for someone to go to Syria has always been, the fact that he already knew someone who had already gone. Mm. So personal relationships uh, played a very, very important role. And they also explain why you saw significant mobilization in smaller towns that perhaps you wouldn't have expected that to come from, whereas uh, much bigger towns like Marseille, for example, in the south of France, that perhaps based on other indicators would have been more likely to recruit a lot of people didn't see any recruitment or no significant recruitment
0: and we see here the role that personal relationships are playing we see here the role of social networks uh the comparison with social movements and one of the things that hasn't been mentioned in this discussion uh is the role of ideology Mm. how do you see the role of ideology at this stage or do you feel it's been overplayed to a certain extent or do you feel that or what's what's your? Well, it, it
1: always depends on who you ask, of yeah. course. Uh, I I think this is one of the central debates in our in in our field. Mm. Uh, how significant uh, is is ideology? How significant is the role of ideas? Um, I've you know written one article, um, uh, the trouble with uh, radicalization, mm. in which I push back a little bit against people who were saying that ideology is not important at all and that we can discount it. And I think that's kind of unfortunately the point where Mark Sageman arrived at some point, Mm. where he basically said um, it's complete nonsense. I don't believe that. However, at the same time, I I also push back against people who say that it is only a bad ideology. Um, I think ideology is part of the mix. In order for it to become politically motivated violence and that's sort of uh, sort of common sense definition of, uh, of terrorism um, at some point there has to be at some point there has to be a degree of uh, rationalization in those terms yes you have a grievance uh, but that grievance n- needs to be channeled into a political project or into a religious project and what I've always warned against is that we're putting the bar too high Uh, So some people, psychologists, often expect um, people who've been affected by an ideology to be ideologically sophisticated, however they are not. Uh, quite a lot of people have very basic, very simplistic understandings of ideolo- the ideology. Mm. If someone tells you, I'm a Muslim and I'm at war with the West, that's not a very sophisticated understanding of, any, uh, uh, of something, but it is uh, a snippet of an ideology. You can trace that back and make it more complicated, make it more sophisticated, mm-hmm. and, and develop all sorts, of, um, all sorts of ideas behind that. But the expression of that idea, the idea that someone who's never been interested in politics in his life, who's only recently started thinking about being a Muslim, now thinks he's part of this global struggle, to me is evidence of that person having been affected by ideology. Mm -hmm. So I'm saying ideology does matter. It probably doesn't matter as much as the people who think it's all about ideology believe it does. But at some point, uh, someone kind of, there is a step in the radicalization process where someone um, starts engaging with those ideas and starts uh, rationalizing them in the sense that he believes that his grievances uh, resonate with those ideas and he becomes part of it. And so that's where I think ideology is important. That's why it's important to study ideology, but never in isolation from the other things that are also happening, social processes, uh, the experience of grievances, the wider political context, etc.
0: Completely. There's no one factor that explains it all. We need to, to take everything into account. Well, those first two pieces would be quite well known to our listeners. This final piece that you've chosen mightn't be as well mm-hmm. known to mm-hmm. others. It's um, William Zellner's piece, uh, Countercultures A Sociological Analysis. Yes. Could you give an overview of what, the, what this book is? So,
1: uh, William Zellner is a sociologist, and he's basically... Um, uh, he, He's, he's doing qualitative research, and he's, he's interested in the idea of countercultures. And, and this book basically consists of uh, different chapters dealing with different, uh, different movements, different movements that would fit his definition of counterculture. So it includes uh, white supremacists and survivalists. It also includes the Ku Klux Klan. It also includes, for example, uh, Scientology, mm. uh, the Moon Church, Um, There's a wide variety of these um, countercultures or subcultures that he investigates. And this has been, uh, this is first of all a very readable book and very enjoyable book for people who are interested in hopeless causes Mm. uh, such as I am. Um, It's very interesting but it also makes you realize that uh, one very fundamental insight about, about terrorism, at least in Western cultures, and Zelna looks at Western cultures, which is that terrorism doesn't come out of a vacuum. It is always connected to a larger movement, to a counterculture, and a counterculture defined as um, a loose, um, confederation of different types of organizations, not necessarily hierarchically, not necessarily hierarchically structured, not necessarily just one organization, could be many organizations, many networks that are fundamentally opposed to the mainstream of culture. And here's the important thing, and this is one particularly important thing that I got out of that, that it's not just about politics. Mm-hmm. Yes, some of these countercultures are political. Uh, but they are not necessarily all political. What they all share, however, beyond the political, are attributes of culture. Mm -hmm. These people would recognize each other on the street, even if they don't know each other, because they have rituals, they have symbols, they have ways of speaking to each other, they have language that only they understand, or people who study them and it 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 constitutes a very strong basis for who they are and who they they believe themselves to be, uh, be and how they uh, construct themselves against against the rest of society yeah. and it is ultimately with all the kind of terrorist groups that we're currently talking about whether it's salafi jihadists they're coming out of a salafi counterculture whether we're talking about right wing neo nazis they're coming out of a broader Alt right, whatever we call that now, alt right, right wing uh, culture, which is not a, uh, entirely violent, but parts of it are, and and this is a very important insight that makes uh, that William Zellner makes us understand a lot better.
0: Yeah, and it while we while all the guests on on this podcast are by. Biden- definition and by identity researchers of terrorism sometimes Mm -hmm. the most interesting things that we find are when we're looking at the non-terrorist aspects of surrounding these groups and individuals and this Aspect of culture uh, is hugely important. It gives us that understanding of not just why someone would join, but what keeps people within this movement, and mm-hmm. what keeps people um, maintained within an organization as well. It's hugely yeah. important, and I, I'm, uh, I, I'm definitely going to be leafing through okay. that book now as well. But we've talked about the pieces that have influenced you, but mainly we're here to talk about your own mm-hmm. research. Mm-hmm. Um, the first piece is a book that you published by with IB Taurus uh, mm-hmm. back a couple of years ago. With the the title "Radicalized," what was the what did you aim to achieve with this book? Um, what were your key findings? Well?
1: So uh, this book was um, this book was, if you want, a, 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 you know, as they say, a first draft, of, a first draft of history. I mean, it was a, a based um, on on a lot of the research that we had done at ICSR on foreign fighters, uh, but also. Um, uh, Giving, uh, giving a broader sense of what we were confronted with. It's kind of making sense of ISIS as it looked at that time. And I wrote that book in 2015. And what I was trying to argue, what I was trying to argue was that what we were seeing as a result of the Syrian conflict was effectively the mobilization of, if you take Rappaport's four waves, of a fifth wave of a fifth wave um, of, uh, of terrorism. And the reason I said that was that um, the mobilization that has happened in Syria has been so significant. It exceeded, it's exceeded every mobilization of foreign fighters in Muslim countries since 1945. It's rejuvenated uh, a movement that back in 2011, a lot of people thought was over and was done with and was strategically defeated in the words of Barack Obama in 2011. And suddenly Syria comes along and it serves as, if you want, the hub and the the cradle of another generation where, if you want, the Afghanistan generation that got radicalized or fought in the 1980s was handing over the reins to a new generation of people. And I truly do believe, and this was the main argument of the book, and at that point it was more contentious than it is now, I truly do believe that the consequences of what's happened since 2011-12 in Syria will be with us uh, for many years to come. And basically the argument of the book was, yes, we are having that that fifth wave, the consequences will be uh, with us for many years to come, and they are particularly significant in relation to Europe because um, what I argued then was that these attacks in Western European countries uh, do have not only the capacity to kill a lot of people, uh, but in fact, do have the capacity to polarize our societies, to drive us apart and to empower not only people on the jihadist end, but actually indirectly and almost in some cases directly empower people on the far right. And that there's real risk in some European societies that we will see extremists egging each other on, and basically uh, the moderate space in the middle of society becoming narrower and narrower. And
0: one of the key cases that you look at here is the case of Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what were your when we look specifically at Germany? What were your key findings? Where do you what what is there anything distinct about the German situation, or does would would what has happened in Germany be transferable across across all of Europe?
1: Well, I think I've, uh, you know, I mean, there's nothing specific Mm. about Germany per se. Um, I think that the way uh, that we've seen uh, people becoming mobilized um, for the Syrian conflict is very similar uh, to a lot of other European countries. And what I'm basically saying, looking across Europe uh, in this book, is that, uh, you know, there are three types, broad types, uh, that, that we have identified based on based on our um, research on foreign fighters in Syria. Uh, one are, if you want the defenders, mm-hmm. um, they are people who've responded to the notion of existential threat, uh, which is something that David Mallet identified in his book, yeah. which basically said, you know, basically responded to the idea that their brothers and sisters were being killed in Syria, that no one was helping, and that it was up to them now to come over and fight for for what they believed in, that if if Muslim identity meant anything to them, now they had to come over and and, and fight. And these were often people that um, had some interest in theology and ideology, and were perhaps also on average a little bit better educated. Then the second wave, which we saw particularly with the rise of ISIS as caliphate, Mm -hmm. as an alternative society, uh, were what I called the seekers. So these were people who were often quite unsuccessful in European societies, who didn't perceive themselves as part of society and who had nothing to lose. And to whom the idea of living, uh, of, of helping to create a new society and to go from zero to hero in no time uh, was something quite invigorating and yeah. exciting and and was something that, um, that they found very, very uh, attractive. And uh, you saw then from, onwards, uh, a lot of these, you know, some people would call them losers, other people like myself would call them seekers, going going over in greater numbers. They were the ones who were basically being told in a thousand years' time, um, people will still be talking about the brave young Westerners who helped create the caliphate. Mm. And that's something, as my colleague Shiraz pointed out, that's something very powerful for someone who is a shop assistant and Primark. Yeah. You know, you, you can suddenly, um, with your actions, draw the attention of the President of the United States of America. Um, You will go over there. You will have a lot of fun. You will be on a secret mission. You will have four wives. You will be a hero in that society. And Mm -hmm. that's the second group. And then the third group um, we called or I called the followers. And they were often basically uh, hangers on, often very low levels of religious uh, literacy. Uh, who are basically part of these uh, very tightly knit social groups uh, where they ended up where half of their social group had already gone to Syria and they felt compelled to follow them because not necessarily because they believed in the project but because they felt they had to be with their friends Mm. and uh, in many cases and i explain or i give some uh, anecdotal examples in in the book Uh, they were quite shocked by what they experienced because they hadn't really um, understood what they were letting themselves in for. So you had one hilarious example of, uh, of one guy from Germany, from the city of Bremen, going there. Uh, ending up with ISIS and basically, uh, first thing he does is he asks he asks the guy at the ISIS recruiter for uh, for a cigarette because he wants to smoke hasn't been smoking and he said like that's not possible and he's like how is that not possible I haven't smoked for at least a week mm. and basically you know every day he discovers more terrible things about ISIS and what it actually means. Yeah. And he then basically after three weeks concludes it's not for him. And even though his friends are there and he loves his friends, he cannot bear mm. uh, being in ISIS territory and he decides to return.
0: And this reminds me of a, of a report that was put that you put out uh, through or about disengagement, about the mm. reasons why people yeah. leave. And one of them is unmet expectations or unawareness of, of what, what would be involved in it as well. So mm. it's hugely important to understand. We, you mentioned that this was... Um, Published in twenty fifteen. Um, in the three years that have passed, has there anything? Wha- what do you see the significant changes that there have been, or have there been any significant changes? That well,
1: obviously in relation to ISIS, mm. there have been uh, huge changes. Uh, the caliphate, um, the territorial caliphate, doesn't exist in the same form anymore. Uh, most of the territory has been cleaned back, and I think um, it's it's a very interesting. Uh, moment in time to study this because I, I'm absolutely certain that in, that in 10 years time we will look back um, to 2018 as a watershed moment, deciding um, deciding what was going to happen to ISIS. Uh, I think the big difference to Afghanistan in the 1980s is uh, that in Afghanistan in the 1980s they were victorious, or at least they ha- had reason to believe, that they were victorious. I mean, people like Al-Zawahri basically wrote in in his Jihad magazine, he wrote, we defeated the Soviets in Afghanistan, and shortly afterwards, the Soviet Union collapsed. Mm -hmm. So basically, we, that small band of fighters, brought down the Soviet Union, and that is what gave them the confidence to take on America. So um, I think as much as we talk about ideology and about social processes, I think one should never underestimate the power of success. Mm-hmm. Nothing succeeds like success. And I think it is far from clear what the supporters of ISIS will make of this defeat of ISIS. Yeah. I think it's very hard, as even, even as leaders of ISIS try to spin this into some sort of victory. I mean, it's very clear also from the people that colleagues like Charlie Winter of mine follow yeah. in, in Telegram channels, that ISIS supporters themselves are a little bit downcast. The excitement is gone, the enthusiasm is gone. What will they do with that that experience or sense of disappointment? Uh, Will they turn away from the movement as a whole? Or will they just turn away from ISIS as an organization? Will that support translate into a different organization? I don't think anyone knows at this point and and uh, we will find out over the next one or two years where the energy will go but i do think this is the big difference to afghanistan 1980s afghanistan 1980s mobilized fewer people than syria now um but they won Mm -hmm. or at least they thought they won and that gave them a lot of um confidence to carry on and to go to different places and these changes that have
0: happened in the since you published the book have come in parallel uh, with the election of Donald Trump. Mm. Um, and he's been in office for two years now, and you are in the process of researching a, a yeah. future future book on Donald Trump's war on terror. Yeah. What, uh, what effect do you? What changes have we seen in Trump's strategy in comparison to Obama or or Bush before him, and how do you see in these early days, in these early years of his presidency, um, that that is affecting what's happening to ISIS
1: now? Well, so I'm uh, obviously still in the process yeah. of figuring that out. No. Um, but it's very clear. I mean, there is a narrative in Washington DC. If you speak to counterterrorism uh, officials, to people who are in government they are trying to convince themselves that not that much has changed Mm. that um, despite the rhetoric despite the words you should focus on the deeds Mm. and the deeds are not that different from uh, from Obama but that of course assumes that the words have no meaning and no consequence and of course they do Mm. um, have meaning and consequence and I do think there are two profound changes um the, I will describe um, Donald Trump's counterterrorism policy as uh, smoke them out or keep them out. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are basically the two aspects that he always emphasizes. The first is to kill terrorists mm-hmm. um, but to kill them I mean of course previous governments have uh, previous presidents have done that too, yeah. but uh, to to really actually only kill them and then, basically take no responsibility for what happens afterwards. So he will fight ISIS in Syria. But once ISIS is defeated, he will withdraw from the place. And as he said himself, um, let them over there take care of it. Yeah. You know, so, so there's no um, sense of wanting to sus- sustain these successes. Uh, Of course, he's been very explicitly um, positioned himself against nation building. So don't expect, even diplomacy, um, this is not something that he's interested in. It's, if you want, a a very militaristic way of approaching CT abroad. Mm -hmm. And then the second and perhaps even more influential um, uh, component of his CT approach is really this link between terrorism, immigration, and Islam. Um, That's never been there before. I mean, even George Bush, as he was announcing the war on terror, was very explicit in saying, look, Islam is a religion of peace. You know, we shouldn't uh, make every Muslim responsible for this, partly because he wanted people not to uh, overreact, but partly also because he understood that he had to drive a wedge between Mm -hmm. ordinary Muslims and the extremists. But with Donald Trump, it's almost exactly the opposite. And when he responds to um, acts of terrorism or even to successes in counterterrorism, he almost, almost always uh, relates it to the issue of Islam and to the isla- issue of immigration. So there are tweets, for example, just to give you one example, there are tweets uh, where he comments on the terrorist attack in Stockholm or in Paris, yeah. and it ends with, we need to build the wall. Yeah. And that's the wall with Mexico. So clearly has not, but he conflates those two issues and makes them inseparable and indistinguishable. And I personally believe there's a greater agenda behind that, uh, which isn't really about CT, mm. it's really about immigration. It's really about preserving the country mm. as he would like to have it. Yeah. And counterterrorism, terrorism like, uh, like terrorism, like uh, crimes that are being committed by immigrants, or the immigrants taking our jobs—they are all part of the same narrative, yeah. and it's basically, um, you know, a narrative that ultimately wants to stop mm. immigration. Yeah. And uh, and terrorism is one of the uh, facets of that broader area. Yeah.
0: So you're in the midst of this research at the moment. Yeah. What approach are you taking?
1: So it's a its it's pretty much—it brings me back to kind of where I started. You. Know, you know, I started with doing a PhD on British can- uh, British uh, counterterrorism or British government strategy in Northern Ireland, and uh, this is uh, very much the approach um, that 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 I followed then, which is I'm doing a lot of uh, interviews, I'm doing qualitative research, and uh, I'm trying to construct construct a clever thesis and, and lay it out and take take it through different aspects of counterterrorism. So I'm going to have a chapter. On the rules of engagement, I'm going to have a chapter on on prevention policy domestically and CVE. I'm going to have a chapter on the immigration ban. So I'm I'm looking at the different important aspects of CT that we have seen materialize over the past over the past fifteen sixteen months and mm-hmm. trying to make sense of it.
0: For our listeners who are unaware of it, what have been the changes in CVE approaches under Obama uh, than has been
1: then under under Trump, well, there have been significant changes there. So so far it's not a hundred percent clear what's going to happen with CVE. Mm. Um, so Obama, uh, of course believed in CVE, mm. thought it was very important. It was very important to build it up both domestically and abroad. You can debate about how successful and how yep. effective these programs have been. And you can also debate the extent to which uh, the number, like the, the, the extent to which uh, him talking about it was actually matched by funds and mm-hmm. by action on the ground. Um, Trump came in and basically said, I do not believe in CVE. Mm-hmm. Um, I do not believe in CVE because uh, it's not effective, but I also don't believe in the concept as such. And since then, uh, domestically, uh, CVE has been, um, has not been stopped. It's now being, it's now being called um, uh, Terrorism Prevention mm-hmm. instead of CVE. So it's been renamed. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not been entirely defunded, but there's a lot less money mm-hmm. for CVE. And number three, and this is also an important aspect, um, it's only about jihadist terrorism. It's no longer... About white supremacist activities as well, and um, you know, I think it remains to be seen where this is gonna go. I think it's def- it's been it's been defunded to the extent mm. that it almost makes no difference yeah. because on the ground it basically has no meaning anymore. Mm. So in a sense, they've they've killed it, but they've killed it without officially killing it. Yeah. They've killed it by almost uh, defunding it to the point. Um, where the programs that exist on the ground are so insignificant that you wouldn't expect there to be any outcome. And um, in terms of uh, foreign programs or international programs, it's more difficult to tell uh, because these foreign programs, as I've been told, are congressionally mandated. So there's funding for them. So they will carry on doing these programs. But in the coming years, Um, the funding will be much reduced Mm -hmm. and so within the ct bureau of the state department a lot of money goes away from cve towards you know working with law enforcement more traditional hard kind of terrorism measures so i don't foresee necessarily a hard stop like Mm -hmm. where someone gives where trump gives a speech and says this is the end of cve Mm -hmm. but a slow death yeah
0: am what role do you feel that uh, the influential individuals around Trump have played in shaping his war on terror, his his uh, counter terrorist initiatives? Like we, mm. for the initial years, Sebastian Gorka was the bet noir for many people. Yeah. Uh, uh, for many people, maybe listening to this podcast in a way. Uh, 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 over-emphasizing enf- uh, the influence that he was having. What inf- what influence do you see people like, like Gorka having on on Trump's views? Or?
1: So I think there was definitely um, a group of um, of people that you can call Trumpians mm. who uh, were associated often with Breitbart news, mm. and Gorka was to Steve Bannon, yeah. um, you know, of course, um, Flynn, the first national security mm. advisor. Um, And there were also some people within the National Security Council that were of the same uh, mold. Uh, Richard Higgins, uh, Ezra Cohen Watnick, uh, a number of people that were associated with that. The argument that I'm gonna make in my book is that the influence was not as pronounced as one might have expected um, because Trump came into office as an outsider. Any other president who's run for the presidency of the past, whatever, 20 30 40 years came in effectively as an establishment candidate they came into office with not only uh, a successful campaign but also with uh, a large group of people that shared their world view who could populate posts in government yeah. in america you have to appoint 4000 positions there are 4000 politically appointed positions that You as a new president can fill not all very high level, but a very significant number of high level. So if you want your ideas to be rolled out and to be effective across government, you have to come to government with an an intellectual army of people who share your views, who you can put in the the posts where they can actually make them effective. (laughs) Trump came as an outsider with a bunch of people like Gorka and Bannon that perhaps numbered 10, 20, 30 people, and yes, they were quite influential, for example, with the immigration ban, Mm. Uh, but many of them were not qualified to be in government, and even those who were qualified in government and stayed in government were not enough to really extend uh, the will of Donald Trump across government, which effectively meant that Trump, in addition to these 20 individuals that... You know, were Trumpian in outlook, he had to appoint a lot of either people he watched on Fox News that weren't particularly qualified, or establishment Republicans that were qualified but didn't share his views. Or he left these positions um, empty. And that's why we still have so many empty positions within the U.S. government. Mm-hmm. So in a way, if you don't agree with Trump, that was uh, in a way a blessing mm-hmm. that he came as such an outsider. That he had failed to create the sort of the um, sort of intellectual army of experienced professionals who were coming into government, who were able um, to uh, to affect his views, and that's why we have this discussion from the far right about the so-called deep state, yeah. because in the absence of, in the absence of these people. Of course, the bureaucracy and the establishment is going to reassert itself. Most of them don't agree with Trump. They certainly don't agree with the more outrageous views of Trump. But they are the people who are effectively implementing policies so far. And that's why you have a lot of people in Washington, D.C., saying, well, maybe Trump isn't so bad because, um, because you know, he may talk crazy, but he doesn't have the people who implement crazy across government."
0: Oh, it's, it's going to be a fascinating topic and I'm a, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are really looking forward to, to seeing the publication of that um, and I'm sure we're looking forward to seeing what Donald Trump tweets about it as well now. <laughs> be doubt, sure to use I the doubt. hashtag Talking Terror though as well. <laughs> do that. Yes. But, um, yeah, but the final piece that we're going mm-hmm. to talk about is a piece that you did with your colleague Rajan Basra. Exactly. Um, criminal Past, Terrorist Futures published in Perspectives on Terrorism but also mm-hmm. a report through yeah. ICSR as well. Mm-hmm you touched on this earlier on when we were talking about the influential pieces and the, the role that criminology plays, uh, or the role that criminal past can play. What? We don't
1: what? have a piece on criminologists no. who become radicalised. No, well. no, no, no. <laughs> that's, that's a completely different piece.
0: It's uh, That's a podcast again in itself. But... um, So... What did you find, uh, what did yourself and Rajan find, and how did you approach doing this So, uh,
1: you know, as I and and Rajan um, were traveling across Europe, speaking to officials, people in security agencies, but also looking at our database of foreign, of foreign uh, fighters, uh, we noticed that a very significant number of them were quote-unquote gangsters. Mm-hmm. And often people used to be members of gangs, had criminal convictions, had sort of rough, um, rough times um, when, they were, when they were living in Europe. And as I started asking um, heads of security agencies, law enforcement, police agencies about that, they all kind of confirmed that. They said, you know, in some countries, 14 other countries, 50, 60% of people uh, that had gone to Syria um, who had criminal pasts. Um, and this was something that I found quite curious because there was barely any literature about that. Mm. Um, so even the people that uh, later on accused us of um, saying something that was not as new as we made it out to be, uh, we always asked, so where's the literature then? Mm. Uh, and I cannot find a lot of literature on on people who've radicalized, who've become jihadi salafists, who have criminal past, And of course... The important thing, the way their criminal past have impacted their involvement in terrorism, yeah. because that's ultimately what we're interested in. Yeah. Uh, if someone has a criminal past, that's like you know uh, as relevant, you know, as uh, someone having gone to school. It's not necessarily not necessarily impacting how that's they okay. are being terrorists, and so it is this 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 impact that we wanted to understand. And so what we did. Uh, Uh, Rajan and I was to start building a database. Uh, Rajan first did that for his his master's dissertation project. He is now doing that for his PhD. Uh, Basically um, reconstructing with uh, court documents, with interviews, with of course secondary sources um, people's criminal pasts and their, what we know about their involvement in terrorism and trying to understand also by comparing it to a control group how does what's the difference to people who don't have criminal past. Mm-hmm. and we basically argue and that's what we did in the report and also in the article there are significant impacts in terms of people's radicalization so we are seeing Uh, what we call the redemption narrative being much more significant amongst people with criminal past, the idea that you can wipe wipe your slate clean, Mm. you can have a fresh start. You can basically continue doing what you did before but because of your change of motivation you're even going to paradise that's what we call the redemption narrative that's a very significant narrative amongst people with criminal past we are seeing differences in terms of the significance of prisons obviously which is the place where those two milieus, the criminal milieu and the extremist milieu are at their closest proximity and we're seeing differences in relation to um, the operational capacity, their access to weapons, Mm -hmm. access to fraudulent documents, and the predominance of uh, criminal funding of uh, terrorist activities. which of course makes sense because if you've always been a criminal, if you've been selling drugs or sending selling counterfeit goods or doing credit card fraud, then that's the obvious way to fund your, fund your terrorist activities too. So um, there are other aspects that are not fully explored yet. Mm. Um, and as we've been presenting this piece of research to a lot of different audiences, there are a lot of different uh, ideas we've come up with mm. which we haven't been able to pursue. For example, uh, one thing that we have seen for which we have tentative evidence, but not enough because our sample is too small, is that, you know, um, because of uh, especially violent criminals' familiarity with violence, uh, it takes less time for them to radicalize into violence. Okay. Um, because the threshold, if you want, the jump, into violent behavior is smaller for someone yeah. um, who's already been violent for bad purposes, mm. uh, than be- becoming a violent, a violent extremist for what he believes is a good purpose. But we need more, more cases to, to mm. really make that solid. And
0: when you were looking at it, and when you're looking at the data uh, that you that you both mm. had, was there a dominant form of criminality that was in people's past? Uh, so. Uh,
1: Almost all of the people we have in our data set are what we would call petty criminals. Mm-hmm. So there's there's only one or two cases. So the uh, the Bokraoi brothers, who were uh, the heads of logistics for the Brussels-Paris network, they were an exception in the sense that they were quite high-level criminals. Um, and they also, as a result, then had access to a very different category of weapons, for example, yeah. Um, but the vast majority of people that we have in our sample are petty criminals, mm. so um, drug dealing, is, uh, members of gangs, but not leaders of gangs. Mm. Um, so, so they would be, you know, small-time criminals, I would, I would argue. And So you, that's why, why we're always very careful to say um, this is not about um, uh, the nexus between organized crime and yeah. terrorism because we're seeing very little evidence of these guys being involved in what many people would understand to be organized crime or mafia type organizations.
0: And you talk as well about the skills transfers from criminality mm, exactly. o- over into terror what type of skills are you talking so about? So
1: that's, that's what I meant by mm. saying you know these, these skills transfers come about as a result of um, uh, partly as a result of being able to access criminal networks yeah. and you can access your previous criminal networks, mm. Um, for example, uh, to acquire weapons, which is not as easy in Europe as, for example, in the United States. Mm-hmm. So if you, said, um, if you said to a guy on the street, if you said to the, to the Hamburg cell in, in 2001, uh, if you had said, and th- they were middle-class students from, from Arab, Arab countries, if you had told them, uh, you know, get hold of five Kalashnikovs, they wouldn't have known how to do that. They had no, they had no connection no overlap with criminal networks and in trying to do that they might have run into a policeman who would have uh, undercover policeman who would have arrested them Mm -hmm. so these guys that we're talking about here they are already coming with that access to the criminal networks. so they have an ability to uh, to access weapons often also access fraudulent documents to the point where in fact uh, isis in some of its magazines is advising its recruits to dress up like uh, boys from the hood okay. um, I- in order to create the impression that they are ordinary criminals that's what these guys effectively are they don't have to dress up like that mm. um, and it, 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 it comes with an ability to access criminal networks uh, but also of course then when it comes to funding their terrorist activities to just employ the same skills that they had before which is selling drugs, um, or um, uh, doing credit card fraud, or stuff like that.
0: And so, do you have you seen evidence, uh, not just about people, these individuals, moving from criminality to to terrorism, but that there's the active recruitment and active targeting by ISIS. Uh, so that's now. more difficult to yeah. say.
1: We are at this point saying um, this uh, this is not systematic even though we do see evidence in um, we do see evidence in uh, ISIS publications but also in sort of uh, posters by um, fanboys um, that sometimes they are um, they are uh, aware that people with criminal pasts are uh, joining and sometimes they are trying to directly talk to them but i haven't seen a campaign i mean w- what started us off on this research was a poster uh, by the british uh, by a british jihadist group which was a very powerful poster with the picture of of a jihadist who basically looked like a gangster with 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 uh, a kalashnikov and below it it said sometimes people with the sometimes people with the worst pasts create the best futures mm. uh, which apparently is a quote from Malcolm X so if you looked at that po- uh, that poster you could see that it was very powerful almost looking like a video game, mm. which almost all of them almost certainly would have played, but also uh, very gangsterish in its, in, its, uh, in its approach and certainly also directed at gangsters. So we do see anecdotal evidence mm. for that. We don't see um, evidence of a sy- systematic campaign by a group mm. like ISIS. What we certainly see, and this is the reason what we can say at this point, is a convergence of milieus. So if you go into the suburbs of Paris, if you go into certain parts of Brussels, Molenbeek for example, uh, a very significant, if if you're trying to recruit young people there, then you will end up with a significant proportion of that Mm -hmm. um, who have criminal pasts. So we're saying rather than being systematic outreach, it is the convergence of milieus that we think, we are convinced is a good explanation for that
0: and with uh, a lot of your piece with most of your pieces not just you individually but with the ICS or they there's always recommendations of yeah. where what this research could recommend, um, uh, those who are looking to counter these issues. So, what would be the key recommendations that came from so this? So, I,
1: I, you know, I give you just a couple of. Them. I mean, obviously, there is a recommendation about prisons and mm. and uh, the the fact, and this is, uh, you know, in addition to other reasons that prisons are becoming more important and will become more important as a place that we need to pay attention to. Um, it's also about broadening our understanding of terrorist financing, and I've written about that separately. We haven't yeah. had the chance to discuss that, but I become really annoyed uh, that whenever I go to countering terrorist finance events, it's always about banks. Yeah. I mean, the the, the fact is uh, since 2014-15, and uh, none of the terrorist attacks in Europe cost more than ten thousand euros. Almost all of them were self-funded, yeah. um, in the vast majority of cases by means that never entered the international financial system. So the idea that you're finding the bank account of uh, Khalif al Baghdadi with Goldman Sachs is completely is completely nonsense. Yeah. You know, if you if if you want to counter terrorist financing. In Western Europe, that also means countering petty criminality. Mm. And so so to broadening our understanding of countering terrorist finance. And also, of course, to constantly uh, rethink radicalization. And this is the, the powerful example that I always give. Here's the case of Anis Amri, who is the guy who attacked the Berlin Christmas market. Mm-hmm. He was considered by the German authorities to be one of the... Um, you know, one of the top extremists in Germany for most of 2016. In September 2016, they stopped monitoring him, they stopped observing him. And when he then attacked, three months later, the Christmas market, a lot of people, of course, asked why did they stop looking at him. And there was an investigation which eventually concluded that Berlin Criminal Police was operating with a checklist of so-called un-islamic behaviors that included um, consumption and dealing with drugs as one of them and of course they observed him uh, not only dealing ecstasy but also consuming ecstasy and cocaine and based on that and based on their checklist they concluded that that was irreconcilable with their understanding of what a jihadist does and therefore he had moved out of jihadism and back into The life of a criminal Um, and that therefore he was considered less less dangerous what they had missed and maybe that was right at some point maybe that was right at the time of uh, 9 11 and the hamburg cell the hamburg cell was like that they were drinking tea every night and behaving Uh, they were very pious and they were meeting each night to discuss theology for for hours on end but you know by the time ISIS came along, and certainly by 2016, there was a sizable um, a proportion of people who were following um, ISIS who were not behaving like that anymore, right. and who were finding it possible to reconcile being a gangster with being um, an uh, religiously motivated terrorist. Anas Amri was one of them. And uh, you know these checklists were basically out of date. And so one of the recommendations uh, was to say, let's rethink radicalization. Do our assumptions about radicalization actually still um, um, conform with reality on the ground?
0: Um before we move on to the final question of the podcast, one of the other recommendations uh,
1: go is in relation to data sharing. What mm. exactly were, uh, were, were so you, you know? Obviously, we are not policymakers, so mm-hmm. we don't know exactly how it works, but. <laughs> Uh, what we noticed was that in almost all of the cases um, of uh, people with criminal pasts who radicalized became extremists involved in acts of, acts of terrorism, uh, quite often after the attack happened, police says, uh, we know him, mm-hmm. um, we have him in our databases, albeit as a member of a gang, mm-hmm. uh, not necessarily as a violent extremist. And so we thought that, if anything, this is more of a recommendation than ever for uh, counterterrorism police not to work in isolation, but to actively collaborate with other parts uh, of policing, people who are chasing gangs, people who are chasing other types of criminal behavior. Um, and uh, and to make sure that once you identify someone as an extremist you're actually going to them, you're saying actually, do, do you know this guy from a previous investigation, it might may actually tell you something that you didn't know before
0: Yeah, no, I think it's a, a hugely important point So, we started with Mark Sageman so mm-hmm. let's finish with Mark okay. as well um, Not let's finish with Mark, but let's have the final <laughs> question about Mark uh, Obviously all of our listeners know that Mark wrote a, an article saying that there was a stagnation in terrorism research. This was a few years ago now. Uh, How do you see? Do you see that there has been a stagnation in terrorism research, or do you, do you see it otherwise at the moment?
1: Well, I don't see a stagnation of terrorism research. Um, quite the opposite. And maybe uh, Mark was right um, back then. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly I, I'm not able to judge that, or would have to think about it more carefully. What I certainly see now um, is that a lot of new people are becoming involved in terrorism research. Uh, We do see more high-quality outputs, more rigorous methodologies, certainly if you compare it not necessarily to 10 years ago but to 20 or 30 Hmm. years ago. Uh, So in my lifetime, in my professional, during my um, professional involvement in this field, uh, I've certainly seen standards rise. Um, I think what's particularly positive is that we're also seeing a lot of women becoming involved in this field of research, which 20 years ago was definitely not the case. It was a rare exception. Um, and uh, a lot of young people becoming interested. The bad news is, of course, that there's a reason for that, and the reason is ISIS. Okay. And just like the, um, the, the, the previous if you want boost to terrorism, uh, research happened after 9-11. We've now, over the past four or five years, seen a lot of people coming into the field, wanting to study and learn about it and doing research about it as a result of the rise of another horrible group that goes around killing people. And this is perhaps the tragedy of terrorism research that more than perhaps um, the study of uh, warfare in the 15th century, um, we are kind of dependent on what happens in the world, um, for good and for bad.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, it's a, it's a, a depressingly true point. All right, <laughs> but um, Peter, thank you so much for being a guest on today's episode. Thank you. Jim. Um, anyone who wants to read or or see the pieces that were uh, re- were talked about here in today's podcast go into the description uh in whatever podcast app you're using or go to the website uh, uel.ac.uk slash trc go to peter's uh, bio and we've got a uh, We've got the titles and links to all of those pieces there. Be sure to join us next week for the final episode in this series where I'll be talking to my colleague Dr Anthony Richards about his research looking into conceptual analysis of terrorism and radicalization. Until then, I'll talk to you all soon. Bye.